Okay. All right. Uh, hey, everybody. We are live at MythCon here tonight. Uh, we are at the annual conference, I should say, of the Mythopedic Society, um, uh, uh, familiarly known as MythCon. Um, and uh, we have uh, a bunch of people here with us today. We have uh, this is the the Saturday night at MythCon, so we have um, we're halfway through the conference now. We've been going for a day and a half, and we're looking forward to another full day tomorrow. Um, so we just wanted to kind of chat about what's going on. At, uh, at MythCon, what we've been seeing so far, and uh, uh, you know, say hi to some of the, the the awesome people who are here. I am joined here this evening by uh, a, a number of cool people. Uh, we have uh, four uh, four MythGuard students. Um, we have Chris Swank. Say hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> we have Luke Bogger. Uh, it's actually Boar. Boar? Really? So here I am uh, meeting Luke in person for the first time this week, and not only that, but also learning how correctly to pronounce his name. Boar? Yeah. Really? As an English teacher, I always told the students, it's like a person who talks for way too long. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah, that's that's best to own it, really. Yeah. That way they can't make the joke. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Uh, and, and, And Kat Sass is here. Hello. And Serena Higgins. Good evening. That's right. Mythgard student who is joining the faculty this fall. Yeah. She's going to be precepting Lewis and Tolkien this uh, this fall with me. So we're very excited. Uh, we also are joined by special guest Paula DeSantos here. Santee. Oh, that's pretty close. <laughs> I was like, one letter away. What is that? It's awesome to have Paula join us. Paula, who spontaneously joined us for our previous MythCon <laughs> broadcast three years ago and came by again tonight. That was I, awesome. I crashed the party. Yeah. <laughs> and also Carl, Carl Hostetter. Aya. <laughs> Very good. So what are your... Uh, what are sort of general responses to MythCon so far? What have been some of your your, your favorite things that have been that have been happening at the conference so far? Michael Drought's lecture on Beowulf, I think, yeah. was I think I forget who said it first, but that was kind of worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was it was really great that he did that on the first night too. You know, he's talking about Tolkien's Beowulf and. Um, you know, he, he when in, in his beginning, he, he he explained that he hadn't been planning to give the lecture, but decided, uh, you know, had been told that if he didn't give the talk on it, he'd be giving it 24 different times as he explained it to everybody who came up and asked him. Because certainly, you know, lots of people want to know what what uh, you know what Mike thinks of Tolkien's translation and their the publication. So he told the whole story of uh, sort of the history with uh, with him and the the Beowulf translation and the Tolkien estate, and uh, so we got to hear kind of the whole the whole whole backstory of that and then he gave his assessment of the of the translation and the commentaries it was really really cool well i think anytime you can get you know a scholar talking about their forte and especially when they bring props (laughs) (laughs) kind of makes the whole experience worth it absolutely absolutely um yeah yeah other thoughts, other things that you've that you've seen and enjoyed. You want to tell people about some of the stuff that that, that happens here at MythCon. Mm, well, uh, since I've been coming here for a very long time, um, it's just great to see friends. These are this is the family reunion I get to have with friends once right. a year, right? And it's wonderful. I love it, and uh, in a beautiful location. Uh, this is really lovely campus. Mm-hmm. Just 
just love walking around and just taking it in. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, little New England small college yeah. campus. We're at uh, Wheaton College this year, which is uh, Mike Drout's uh, school. He's hosting it this year, uh, and it's been it's been it's been fantastic. It's great to have a lot of new people here. I mean, a lot. I love it. This is exactly what we need to do: is keep bringing new people in. So it's been wonderful to have. Here. I think somewhere between a third and a half of the people here are, are new, which wow. is wonderful. So. Yeah. And not only that, but presenting papers. I was in a session today where the uh, presenter said that he first read Tolkien as a serious scholarly piece of literature a year and a half ago. And he's, <laughs> and he's here presenting a paper on Sigurd and Gudrun. And that was really exciting. <laughs> so that's not that, like the go-to one that you think of right. when you think of new Tolkien readers. But uh, Boy, talk about like jumping in with both feet. Huh? And he did. <laughs> and he did a great job, yeah. That's fantastic. And uh, even the, 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 the generation subsequent to that is, is an appearance here because Chip Crane's two uh, young boys actually gave a paper, right. which I, they may have the record for the youngest presenters, and it was really good. Yeah, it really they, was very well done. They were what, like, how old are they? Oh, Eight? Maybe? Well, that like ten, 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 something yeah, like that. Yeah. So, can, can you give us the short version of their paper? Well, they looked at, uh, I think it was called something like the, the power in naming, and so they look, they look at the use of names um, as a means of identifying, of controlling, um, of having power over individuals, knowing their real history, who they really are, and even also the power of unnaming. They mm -hmm. brought out some examples in, in various uh, uh, fantasy books where um, characters are actually have their names removed, eradicated mm -hmm. from history, which is a really kind of a creepy thing to think about. Yeah. So it was very well done. Excellent, excellent. I was sad I didn't get to see that one because that's that's something that I've thought about fairly fairly often. That in a mythological sense, often naming something is having power over that thing, you know. And I, I really wanted to see their take on it, but it was just happening at the same time as a couple other interesting things that I had to go to. <laughs> I.e., your panel. Yes, that's right. <laughs> An interesting panel on teaching Tolkien at the college level. And I like that that covered teaching higher level classes where you can really delve into some of the more difficult texts and then people were asking questions about how do you teach this to students who aren't ready for that level? What if it's a freshman composition class or a class that maybe has some students with some remedial reading needs and so forth? And that was really um, inspiring and practical. And I've liked in that panel and also in Michael Droughts how we saw examples of really great teaching, people who are so passionate about the literature they're able to give a very scholarly presentation but without making it dry and without stripping it of the love of the literature. Mm -hmm. and that panel was uh, interesting to me because in 1978 I took a class on talking at the University of Michigan and uh, uh, the professor's name is Thomas Toon and he looked like Tom Bombadil. He was wonderful. <laughs> and um, that class was packed. I mean, I was like, oh, please let me get in. And I did and I loved it. Uh, but it's a little distressing that it's still taken this long for it to become more common. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least it is, but it, that's kind of a long haul. So. Yeah. Right, well, that's the, I think, the perspective that Berlin Flieger brings to it, is you realize, you know, when people ask, is the climate changing? And you kind of say, well, a little bit, you know, like, you know, by incrementally, but you realize she's been having that fight for 
40 years, you know, and yeah. still having it and everything. So it really yeah. gives you a sense of the history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was... I was sitting, you know, uh, you know, she's like, I first, I taught my first talking class in 1974, and I was like, I was born in 1974. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said, I'm like, and, and, and I get to go after that, you know, like well, my vast wealth of experience uh, compared to Roman Flieger. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's though it is always um, <laughs> my, my my well sort of perversely my favorite moment in that panel was the person who asked the question about is the climate getting better and I you know she seemed to be asking it with a certain amount of like hope and optimism yeah. and Verlin and I are like no, no. <laughs> not really <laughs> um, and it's it, I mean it, it's changing in that there are more people who are who are coming up and, and, and doing it but as far as like the top down right. attitude hasn't changed um, right, and, and you said even the change there is, is is often about the practicalities of getting butts in seats, as it exactly, is about like yeah. a change of actual perspective. Oh, man, you should hear Tom Shippey talk about that. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Tom Shippey is like, is like, you know, he's he says, uh, you know, the, the only reason they teach Tolkien now is because they 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 are trying to survive because they're all about to die, and I say, good. <laughs> <laughs> just fantastic, um, but uh, but yeah, no, it is it is quite. A, in fact, I, I called it a disreputable reason, which I think I think that, that was that was a shippy term for it. Um, but um, but yeah, no, it's there's still there are many you know people coming up through. You know, there are many there are many younger people entering academia, you know, who have a different perspective on it. But there's still a lot of people who have to die before it changes really dramatically. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, but that's just the fact of the matter. Same thing more optimistically when those students grow up. And exactly, go absolutely. When they yeah. not that I'm, they'll be ready to. Not that I'm hankering for the death of those people. But. <laughs> True, if they're talking about butts and seats, yeah. the, the students that are coming through right now crave mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. They want yes. to have classes on the Hunger Games and Divergent. And, and all of the genre literature, and yes. it's the administration that's saying, well, we don't know if we can transfer that, we don't know if we can accredit that, we're not quite sure mm-hmm. how to give you credit for that, and, and if they would just do it, they would have the people enrolling for those classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's uh, and you know, really, I mean, you can see it as a, as a symptom of a bigger thing. I mean, especially the 20th century uh, literature people, you know, who have been, you know, sort of trying to defend the canon against popular fiction of any kind, and Tolkien is kind of the bugbear of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know all the stories about the 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 people who keep releasing polls about the most influential book of the century keep trying to rephrase it so that Tolkien doesn't win. You know, and, and failing <laughs> every time. You know? Well, I have a question for you because that was just a few years ago when it was called. It was named the uh, yeah. book of the century. Um, were your colleagues' heads exploding when that happened? They they just dismiss it. I mean, yeah. because this is the thing: is if you if if you dismiss Tolkien on the grounds that it's popular, um, and, you know, it's 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 one of those arguments that's impossible to lose, right? You know, like basically any evidence that you can bring forward to show that it's worth studying is not only can be discounted, but is used as an, as evidence against the position. So you know, the fact that it's you know, 
if I try to say, for instance, as I was initially, uh, you know, in my own teaching career, saying, hey, you know, it, it's 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 really accessible. It's a way to make this stuff accessible. Accessibility is no is no argument in favor <laughs> of something. Right, that's a dumbing down. <laughs> exactly. Of, yeah. you're, you're, you're not going to convince a lot of modernists by by saying, but it's so accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, well, and then the inverse argument is, you know, if, if you try to argue, well, just just because it's popular doesn't mean it's not good. Look at Charles Dickens and those those people, and they say, oh, well, that's because that work is complicated. And then you say, well, have you read it? And they say, no. <laughs> it's like, well, then how can you say it's not complicated? Yes, yes. Yeah, no, the uh, former colleague of mine with whom I had most arguments about Tolkien and who was most vehement against my including it, near the end of our discussion admitted to having never read it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was like, and it's always something that I've marveled at. You know, yeah. there aren't that many, there aren't that many things which an academic will make a vehement argument against and confess openly, simultaneously, that they've never read it. Right. You know, normally they'll at least take it if they're going to argue against it. <laughs> right? But that, I mean, who would make an argument against, I mean, there are some things like, Twilight comes to mind. People make arguments against Twilight when they've never read it, you know, which is why I read it, so that I could make arguments without feeling conspicuous. But um, uh, as I've said before, my assessment of Twilight is very simple. Boring. But anyway, uh, it's, 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 but, but Tolkien, they'll just, they'll just sort of pile on without data. <laughs> it's really puzzling to me. It seems that, that that happens more with genre things, that it does seem to be that they have something against the concept of it rather than against the thing itself. You know, right. it's not about, I've read it and I, you know, think it's no good for this reason. It's something about that kind of thing that is just a turn off, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this kind of brings me to Luke's paper, which was, he was looking at some spiritual criticism of fantasy and how that's out of fashion. And so even the people that look at fantasy don't want to look at it as an in-depth kind of um, uh, something that has layers and something that you can talk about these deep issues with uh, that the people want to talk about it on the surface of, you know, how pretty Legolas's hair is. (laughs) (laughs) Rather than than the spiritual element. So you get to talk about your paper now because that was a nice intro. Uh (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, it just... Well, the paper I presented today is actually about 10 years old. I started writing it as a, as a research paper my junior year in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you know, that was the classic, you have to have 100 different reference note cards for a research <laughs> paper. Um, and so then after that, I, I revisited it several times and threw away all the bad high school argumentation and updated the sources. And But the new component to that paper is... I realized through that lengthy process that we don't have academic spiritual criticism of Tolkien. We have um, what you could call religious studies of Tolkien, where someone's trying to to put it into a spiritual lens and claim it to be a spiritual work. Devotional works from Tolkien. Exactly. but you don't have someone just critiquing the archetypal elements within a literary framework. And so that's that's 
the overarching idea of the paper and what I presented today was just kind of part of the case study of what that could look like. Um, there's still a lot left to be done on that paper before it's anywhere near anything, but <laughs> it's a fun challenge. Could you explain that phrase a little bit more, the academic spiritual criticism? Well, in, in the paper I say, you know, you kind of have three different things that spiritual criticism kind of does at this point. It, it either tries to make claims about the, the author's personal belief and say, well, they're Christian, so it's a Christian work, and so let's just say that the whole thing's a Christian work, and let's analyze it as theology. Mm -hmm. Or then they try to make the entire thing a religious allegory, and again, let's analyze it as theology. Or um, <clears throat> the last thing is that they come they come to it with a very personal thing. Um, Anna Marie uh, Grazello's book yeah. does this. It's, you know, this this part of the text spoke to me at this point, and this part of the text spoke to me at this point, and so... While that is that is a that is a valid study within the religious field, it's not it's not academic criticism. It's spiritual criticism uh, of a sort, um, religious criticism, and, and so it's the major point is to keep your criticism within the context of the text itself, because it's that archetype informing your interpretation of the text that should be the end goal. It shouldn't be to make the text into something that it's not, or to squeeze the text into your own interpretation. And, and so it, it really is just kind of a, a very tenuous argument in that you're going to get attacked from both sides with that one. <laughs> um, and uh, I will say, as, as a first-time conference attendee anywhere, and as a first-time presenter anywhere, it, it has been really miraculous, the reception I received. Um, I, I came here expecting maybe five people in a room. You know, I was like, okay, I can do that. And there were 20 or 30. And there were people sitting on the floor. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is more than I anticipated. And, um, you know, I, I got some very nice, constructive criticism that I can take back and strengthen my paper and hone my arguments. And um, But didn't feel personally attacked, didn't feel affronted, anything like that. It was it was a very nice experience. Um, we don't bite. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> um, so that was yesterday. That was the second session of papers. Um, did anyone go to any of the first session papers? Was anyone yes. here? Yes, and I'll jump off of what you said and then talk about one of those papers okay. as well. I think you were illustrating something really, really important in Tolkien studies and Inkman studies in general, that we're kind of just entering the third generation of scholars, that people like yourself who are just presenting are kind of the third important wave. And so um, Inkling scholarship is just starting to grow up, I think. So we had a first generation during and right after their lives that was mostly summary, introduction, presentation, and an appreciation. Mm -hmm. So papers then would be sort of, look at how great this book is. Let me tell you what it's all about and what a great book it is. This is especially true in C.S. Lewis studies. And then the second generation tried to be a little bit more theoretically rigorous, and I think that was easier to do with Tolkien than the others, because he provides such fertile ground for that with the languages, the linguistics people jumped on that. But now we need to go even further and be more rigorous and look at the work that's been done before, which you were just saying. We don't just want to summarize the text and appreciate that. We want to find deep structures and deep interpretive ways 
of approaching them. So there have been a few papers that have done that, some that were older scholars who had that wealth of experience, like the keynote speech that we heard this morning Maybe we can talk about. Mm. Um, in the first session, I went to Brenton Dickinson's paper about C.S. Lewis, mm. where he presented um, some material on a, a newly published preface that he's just published um, to the screw tape letters and was talking about how can we approach imaginative universes, speculative fiction, how can we look at it in a much more profound way, looking at the science of it and the, the astronomy in it and the cosmological elements. Yeah, just to, uh, for people who who uh, know C.S. Lewis, this was, I think, to me, the single most mind-blowing. I had not heard of this, and it was the single most mind-blowing thing I have learned at this conference. Uh, which is that there was a there was an, a, a deleted section of the original preface to Lewis's screw tape letters, wherein he explained that the original documents uh, of you know the the the, the, the transcript of, of screw tape uh, in his letters to Wormwood was written in Old Solar. Uh, and translated by ransom, so he was explicitly connecting the screw tape letters uh, to the space trilogy, um, which is still blowing my mind when I think about it. Like I'm still trying to process it opens that such enormous possibilities. Oh ways of looking at the language, ways of looking at the universe that's being created, uh, ideas about hell and how the fallen angels are related to the Eldila. Yeah, on and on. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just I can't even begin to formulate my thoughts about. Mm-hmm. Changing the way I'm looking at screw tape by uh, thinking about Lewis making that connection. It's yeah. incredible. And where is this published? Do you remember? The preface itself is published in Notes and Queries. So that's just the text of the preface. You can read a little bit more about the project on his blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia. Okay. But he hasn't published all of this material yet. Cool. Yeah. He found that at the Wade, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's a very Tolkienian. Exercise. I, th- I always think of Lewis's fictional worlds as very connected thematically, but but separate from each other. Whereas it seems like Tolkien's the one who wants to draw everything in and make yes. the connections, and it seems like he had those similar impulses. And then when you add in, you know, in the introduction to, uh, is it Out of the Silent Planet with the or. Which one of the space trilogy books that makes reference to Numenor and everything that that, that it's that strength. strength yeah. That he yeah. strength. So yeah. that kind of connecting between the different yeah. worlds that he was building and everything. Yeah, I and mean, that's exactly why I found it so mind blowing. Because you know, whereas you know, Tolkien is you know not in every case, but in so many cases, doing the whole you know Nichols tree thing and you know tacking right. his you know small paintings onto the edges of his big painting. Lewis generally doesn't do that. So, I mean, that's, that's why you know, I, I'd literally never, ever, it would never have occurred to me in my entire life to think of, to think of screw tape and the LDLA in anything other than like a contrasting two totally different ideas of Lewis's. The idea that he was kind of mashing them together in that way is, is really fascinating. And for more on that topic, come to the Inklings and King Arthur panel tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. Because this is uh, this is the panel. The, the King Arthur panel tomorrow is uh, contributors for your book, right? That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That would be a segue for you to talk about your book. <laughs> this, is a, this is a collection that I'm editing of chapters about the Inklings Arthurian works. So we have a large section of the book that gives context and backgrounds, talking about spiritual quests um, in a scientific era, talking about Arthurian literature all the way from the earliest works up until the 20th century and some of their predecessors. 
and then large sections on Tolkien, Lewis, and Williams. So tomorrow, four of my chapter writers are presenting little pieces of their research. So who are your confirmed chapter writers? Well, there are 24 of them, so I will not run through, but some that are relevant for this group. Um, Robin Ann Reed is writing one, and she's doing a grammatical stylistics analysis of the landscapes in Tolkien's The Fall of Arthur. So that's, she's one of those people who's looking at it from a modernist perspective instead right. of medievalist perspective, so that's great. Um, Holly Ordway from Houston Baptist is doing the chapter on Arthurian background literature. Um, Malcolm Gite is doing the conclusion in which he looks at the Inklings as prophets who are looking forward into the future and how their Arthurian works are anticipating future themes and works. Mm-hmm. Those are a few samples. Mm-hmm. So you'll be at MythCon next year when it's Arthurian uh, oh, theme. I hope so. <laughs> I'll have all the chapter writers will come next year and just the whole MythCon will be like, you can see <laughs> In the, in the next session, we had Janet Brennan Croft present a couple papers early on. Did, they, did anyone go to either of those? I went to the naming one. Oh, you did? I was supposed to be the early ones because I was I was late on Friday, so I didn't. You were recording your. Yeah, I was doing riddles in the dark in the morning and then driving down after that. So yeah, yeah, I was I was uh, delayed. I was delayed. <laughs> you arrived precisely when you mentioned it. sounds like, from Carl's summary, it sounds that it was covered like it was covering very similar material to what the little boys presented on the power of names and who gets to choose their names no. and what happens when someone is unnamed. But yeah. she was looking at it more from a feminist perspective about when women have the authority and power of naming either mm-hmm. themselves or someone else. She was looking at it in in Buffy. What I love about this conference is that you can go from a session on Buffy to a session on Neil Gaiman to a session on uh, ABC's Once Upon a Time to Tolkien. I mean, it's just really very eclectic, and there's there's something for everybody that likes um, fantasy and, and genre TV and literature so and film. It's, um, it feeds all parts of your soul. <laughs> I'm waiting for the first Sharknado paper. Though. <laughs> <laughs> you need to write that. <laughs> Sharknado and King Arthur. <laughs> 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 it's a very natural crossover. It, it really is. The return of Sharknado. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, as Michael Drought said about MythCon quite aptly, we're an academic conference with one-third the pomposity. Right. So it makes for a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is one thing I've always appreciated. You know, it's uh, as, a, as a medievalist, I, uh, you know, sort of grew up in conferences at Kalamazoo. You know, that was, Kalamazoo was always the conference. And, of course, it's a great Tolkien conference, too. Um and there are really great panels and wonderful people at Kalamazoo, but it's a huge, huge academic conference. And as a medievalist, you know, grad student and everything, it's always, you know, there's always this like, I gotta go to Kalamazoo and make my bones. And you're walking out of the, you know, the corner of your eye of other people. And you know, there's always, you know, it's it's uh, very much more of that, like, you know, and you know, t- the fear and trembling, you know, when like. Is that Larry Benson over there? <laughs> you know, I mean, just like when you know, the great scholars walk by and you're in awe, and it's it's very refreshingly different atmosphere here. 
from yet there. there's always Tolkien at Kalamazoo as well. So exactly, yeah, running concurrently, you know, there's always a room where you can go to Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, those those Kalamazoo. are really good. And, and yeah. again, there's there's you know that in those panels there's a very different atmosphere. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's very you know the, the whole the whole community I think is is very uh, is is very different. How large is that conference? Kalamazoo. In terms of um, five thousand participants. Wow. Five, five, usually f- five to six hundred panels. I live in Michigan. I had no idea. It's, yeah. a, it's amazing. <laughs> you can watch swords being made in the morning. Oh my goodness! And uh, it's great because there are monks and nuns, like actual monks and nuns, <laughs> not cosplayers, but right. walking around with their, you know, iPhones checking <laughs> stuff, and it's just mind blowing the, yes. the, the things that you can do there. But my first year at Kalamazoo. I went to this panel and there was a woman who made one of the speakers cry. And I turned to somebody and I said, wow, that's really harsh. And they said, oh, no, she does that every year. And if you write Oh, her. Her. No, I know just who you mean. Yes, I do. If you write on this certain Uh, topic, uh Uh her goal is to break you. And we just don't have that sort of thing at (laughs) Minnesota. No. 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 It's just, it's not nasty at all at Minnesota. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We're going to send out the press gangs to see if there's anybody else that we can we can drag in. Um, we had a we had a really fun uh, exercise tonight. We were uh, doing Beowulf aloud. We were reading uh, uh, Beowulf selections from Beowulf, uh, both in Anglo-Saxon and in uh, uh, and in Tolkien's uh, new translation. That was a lot of fun. It was really great to hear Tolkien's translation read yeah. aloud. You know, I was I was thinking when. Um, Michael Drought commented on it. We said, now that I'm hearing it aloud, I, I think better of it than when I was just reading it off the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been kind of thinking that last night, actually, at his talk, because that's, I, you know, I'm always thinking of, uh, thinking of things aloud. I, I always like to read things aloud. I'm a very, very audio person. Um, but, um, it was. Uh, I, I do think that it, it has. You can hear his sensitivity to sound, even in even though it is, you know, kind of ornate and, and complex prose in places. Uh, but I think that the the, the, the sound structure works really really well. I think it was interesting. Just again, as as someone new to the to the convention, to see how many people were courageous enough to get up there and do it in in Old English and it you know it has to be said that it's particularly daunting when you're around people who have studied this stuff and yeah. know you if you're doing it wrong so <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah I, yeah Luke and I and Carl all did read uh, in uh, in Anglo-Saxon and it was I Cold reading, like sight reading, Anglo-Saxon is really hard. It's really hard. Uh, I mean, I love reading Anglo-Saxon if I can have a significant amount of time to practice <laughs> you know, the passage that I'm going to do. Uh, but that was that was really challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know why I was surprised. I shouldn't have been the amount of people that knew Old English well enough to to, to get up and do that. Mm-hmm. Another great feature that uh, occurred today was the the incorporation of the people from Turbine. Yeah, that was I I think that was a huge draw because I, I looked around the theater when when they were presenting and it was 
it was a very young crowd, you know, much much younger than, I mean, you hear academic conference and you think, oh, these are all a bunch of tenured professors and that's the age range, but there were a lot of college-aged kids here to, to see and interact with the people who designed and developed the game. Yeah, it was interesting to listen to them and, and talk about how they're doing it at this time and, yeah. and how far back yeah. it's been in production. I mean, yeah. and then they have another seven years to go. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always been everything I've everything I've always heard about Lord of the Rings Online. I've never played it yet. I've been I've been holding off. Uh, but I've always been impressed by everything I've heard, and I was actually listening to them um, was 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 fascinating. I mean, I think that the 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 connection between the kind of world building that they're that they're doing uh, and the way that, and I was I was especially impressed at how they're thinking of the, the kind of narratives that they're building and the way that they're incorporating story. Um, you know, the interplay between Tolkien's written text. The themes of Tolkien's written text, the details of his descriptions and everything, um, and then you know the narrative and the story that they make and sort of fill in around the edges, you know, uh, going to places which we never see or only very rarely hear about and everything. Um, it was I, I I thought that was really fascinating, and I really have a lot of respect for the thought that they're doing. In that. Chronologically correct. Yes. So saying it's now it's opening up more now that they've done. Certain things well, established. Well, and yeah, it's they they started. They're following the path of the fellowship, and kind of the higher you get in the game, the farther you can go along that path. Um, one of the great things I love about their process, though, is no one said it in the presentation, and I really wish they had. They're being sub-creators. Yes, they're taking the little germs that Tolkien gave them, and they're fleshing it out to make a story. Yeah, I think that's miraculous. I, I think it's. Honestly, I think it would make Tolkien happy to see that because it's the exact same kind of process that he likes to see. Yeah. Um, and so I, I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Well, is it a similar size group of people who play across the world, like to World of Warcraft, I know, which is humongous? I don't, I don't know. Is it similar in size? Or? They, they were asked that after afterwards when they were mm-hmm. small group congregated, and he said, actually, it's kind of a closely guarded secret as to how many, but what he, what they could say is that, you know, World of Warcraft at its peak had over around 10 million, and they've come down since then, and Lord of the Rings all has never gotten close to that. Okay. So, that, that's about as much as he could say. Uh, my, the one thing I heard a while is that they have several million, though. Okay. I mean, so we're, like, they haven't reached 10 million, but right. they're in that order of magnitude, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, when I first heard of Lord of the Rings Online, I have to admit that I made the assumption that it was going to be the kind of cheap knockoff that almost every Tolkien video game I'd ever seen had been. <laughs> you know, um, and and I don't, I've never, I mean, although I, I've always loved video games, I never played Tolkien video games because they always annoyed me. You know, I mean, the, the, the sort of pseudo-Tolkien framework, which was rarely more than paper thin on the surface, um, I found it completely distracting. You know, I, I would much rather play a different game that was that was not pretending uh, uh, to sort of go in that direction. And I have to admit that I assumed that this was going to be, you know, it's like, okay, it's 
World of Warcraft with Tolkien trademarks. Okay, <laughs> um, that was the assumption I made at the beginning. Um, but the more I heard from people who played it, um, and, and the more I learned about it, the more impressed I was. But even knowing, you know, even having learned a good deal about it and having talked to a lot of people uh, who played it, I was still impressed hearing them talk. It was great to hear the Turbine guys. We're fortunate we're in Massachusetts this year, so the Turbine is like a few miles away. So uh, the uh, you know the several of the their. Uh, Chief Lore Monkey, uh, as he titled, <laughs> titles himself, uh, uh, came down, and he was it was it was it was great to hear about his process. They showed us from I think my favorite. Of course, they were showing a lot of the visuals, which are just stunning. From yeah. many, you know, uh, the you know, Dull Amroth is gorgeous, uh, but my favorite visual that they showed was the spreadsheet that he made. Yeah. Um, uh, he, 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 they went through and uh, he, he did a like a moment-by-moment moment, uh, spreadsheet correlating like when, when Tolkien made reference to particular meteorological phenomena during the battle and what was happening in other places at the same time. You know, so that when they, when they did that battle, because, you know, the, they're um, basically you sort of play in the game... They, 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 you, you never, almost never play one of the main fellowship characters. So, you know, you're able to, like, you're like one of the people helping to round up the, the you know, Arkenbrand's warriors to, to come to the assistance of them in Helm's Deep. So, you know, when you get that all of the events are coordinated properly so that, you know, it, it works out just as it's scripted uh, in the book. And the the, the detail of, yeah. of everything that they had of like, you know, Legolas kills orc number 12. And <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was really interesting. Yeah, it was really, by the, by minute by minute, a running tally of orc kills for Legolas and Gimli <laughs> on the two right hand columns. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sounds like plotting a murder mystery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was like, it was like 502, like a list, 12, Gimli, 5. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I noticed the color coding was that for different aspects. Yeah, I, so. I, I think so. Yeah, I was. Uh, the, the, uh, I, I couldn't interpret all of the different ways, but yeah, because you know they're, they're having different cutscenes between different parts of the battle and everything. So you know, trying to make sure to correlate all that carefully. And again, I mean, you know, obviously there's lots of scope to disagree with their interpretation, or you know, w- when they do, you know, their own sub creation and are filling things in. You know, there's there's lots of opportunity to. Um, uh, to to disagree with the stuff that they that they said um, or that they've written, but you know you can't you can't challenge you know you can't question their passion you know for the text and that you know that they're, they're being really really thorough in what they do. Not together, not at all, not at all. And that was I was. They have my great respect for that. Well, we have been. We have been uh, we've been joined by several more guests here. So let me introduce uh, people here, and have, have, well, maybe I should have you introduce yourselves here, briefly. Uh, Chris Larson, professor of astronomy at Central Connecticut State University. Excellent. Yes, Chris was on the panel with me, uh, the Teaching Tolkien panel this morning. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. Jewel Morrow, retired librarian. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, Richard West, retired libra- librarian from the University of Wisconsin, and. I'm um, the guest of honor at this one of the guests of honor. Yes, time. yes, we're very we're very glad to have you with us, Richard. Uh, Richard gave his uh, plenary address this morning, which was uh, which was wonderful. It was a, a great sort of uh, uh, over. You want you want to talk a little bit about to sort of share with people a little bit about what you were talking about? All right. Well, since I was a scholar guest of honor, I I was to give the the keynote address on the conference theme, which is where fantasy fits. 
I gave it the subtitle, The Importance of Being Tolkien, because I was sort of giving an overview of, of fantasy from Gilgamesh to the present day, which is sort of, <laughs> sort of in, perhaps overly am, ambitious. No, I jumped, ar- so. jumped around a lot. <laughs> but I was talking in, in the 20th century, uh, basically the uh, realistic novel had, be, had become you know, dominant when the much of the 19th and 20th centuries, although there was always some, some fantasy. But there was, after the after World War One, there was very little fantasy published until Tolkien. Tolkien was the game changer. And lots, a lot of this was simply uh, there was change in taste, <laughs> change, in the, uh, change in, in, in the zeitgeist. After the, after the First World War, people uh, were not, for whatever reason, when the fantasy, as Tolkien said, went into the nursery. It wasn't in the. Uh, it wasn't considered quite proper for for adults. So it uh, it went into pulp magazines, uh, low lowbrow publications instead of into adult literature, until t- Tolkien, which, which the publisher actually thought, well, this is a work of genius, but we'll lose a thousand pounds if we publish it. But it's so good, we're going to publish it anyway, and which I think is what happened. I gave examples of some of the major fantasies between the, the, the end of World War One and, and Tolkien, and essentially they all had the same problem. They were just so good that they got published, <laughs> but they didn't sell very well in most in, in most cases. With Tolkien, he sold very well from the beginning, <laughs> and part of it was as, as Northrop Frye, one of our great theoretical critics, says there was a change in taste again, and he came along at the right time. To, to take advantage of it, and he was just so good that he that, that became so influential on on other fantasy, and he was he was good. Although he's often called a high fantasy, he fantasy about heroes. He wrote practically every type of fantasy: comic fantasy, dark fa- fantasy. I think urban fantasy is about the only type that I can't give an example that Tol- Tolkien did better than most people who came, who came after him. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, this terrorist doesn't quite count as urban yeah. fantasy. <laughs> 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 so I gave uh, examples pre-Tolkien, after Tolkien. Was also arguing there is this what I could call this is a false myth rather than a true myth. That Tolkien came out and it was uh, it was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't until it came out in paperback that people took notice. And right. the big scholarship started, and I said, "This is this is not true." He was selling well in in hardcover. His publisher told him, "The royalties are going to give you a comfortable retirement." And uh, the book was selling, and I said, "Within the first ten years, there was uh, a major master's thesis just on on Tolkien, four PhD dissertations." in which Tolkien was a, a substantial section, and the others tended to be related authors like C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams. And at least 11 major articles in scholarly or at least intellectual journals, which were very good, most of them were reprinted uh, later when they started doing collections of the good essays on Tolkien. Mm-hmm. So he was already a critical success, already an a- academic uh, success before the paperback. The paperback simply meant that what was a successful novel became a phenomenally successful <laughs> novel. And, and it just took off and never went back. But, and other writers took advantage of this. They now, they now had a market for the fantasy that they would like to do. Glenn Enzo 
but he was also got imitated a, a lot, and sometimes that was very bad. <laughs> but yes. uh, but but many people then sort of emulated him and said, "Well, uh, he's done all this wonderful stuff with world mythology, but mostly it's Norse and, and, and Celtic. I'll do at Australian Aborigine, right. <laughs> like Patricia Wright to Wrightson, but." She'd read Tolkien, and she said, ah, I'm going to structure it the way he did. I'm not just going to write a novel with showing up Aboriginal mythology. I will actually look at the real mythology and set it, this, 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 this tale belongs in this part of the country. This tale belongs in that part. Uh, she actually got into trouble with the Australian Aborigines and had to stop doing it because they felt she was, <laughs> she as a white person was <laughs> using their mythology mm-hmm. <laughs> right. without their permission. Uh, <laughs> but and the strategy was draw permission, so she stopped doing doing that kind of thing. She was a, uh, sort of a, a, a very good good writer in, a, in Australia. Um, and other I mentioned others like Terry Pratchett, who was the best selling author in England until J.K. Rowling came around and displaced <laughs> everybody. <laughs> she is the only author I know of who's become a billionaire by writing novels. But it was good. So that was somewhat an overview. Oh, that's <laughs> great. That's great. Yeah, we've just been sort of you know talking about uh, you know the things that we've seen and panels that we've been to and sort of impressions and thoughts just to to kind of share with people who couldn't be here at NethCon some of the things that we saw and heard anything particularly striking that you would want to share anything you know sort of favorite favorite parts of uh, today or yesterday or things you're looking forward to tomorrow no putting on the spot uh, well <laughs> um, not to do a little commercialization for myself, but I will given the chance. Uh, I'm doing a paper tomorrow on magical weapons in, uh, it's advertised as the Silmarillion and uh, Game of Thrones, but I'm also talking about uh, Witcher and Dominion as well. So that'll be fun. I brought some meteorite samples with me and some uh, iron ore samples with me to pass around and talk about. So So there's going to be a talk on the science of magic weapons. Sort of, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, awesome. (laughs) <laughs> That's He's our scientist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to tell you. I, I, it was it was too irrelevant for me to excuse bringing it in on our panel this morning. But I had a, a physics uh, student who really wanted to do her thesis on Tolkien mm-hmm. and to sort of integrate. You know, looking at doing like an English physics uh, dual thesis, mm-hmm. uh, looking at <clears throat> the fall of Numenor. Uh, and thinking about like the switch from Cartesian to spherical coordinate systems, and, right. and the correlation of that with a with a literary moment, but she couldn't sell it to either the physics or the English department, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I was thinking that you were making me remember her this morning when you were talking about because uh, you're because you 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 teach science, right? You're yeah. you're 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 a science professor yeah. who is a Tolkienist and, yeah. and, and 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 teach on Tolkien, and you do. You do direct crossover, right? You, you, yeah. you say you, you do classes on sort of science and Tolkien. What are some of the things that you focus on in your in your science and Tolkien classes? Well, I, I start. I, I try to do the Silmarillion. Try, try to do it uh, chronologically from the beginning. So I start with the beginnings of science and creation myths, and go on and talk about uh, the chapter on the creation of the sun and the moon, and talk about calendars and how horribly messy they are, and how Tolkien actually. 
derived his own calendars, which he was very proud. The Numenorean calendar was more precise than the Gregorian calendar. In one of the letters, he talks about that. He's really proud of that. And, and uh, also talk about uh, Tolkien's descriptions of uh, volcanoes and and uh, and the, and also the whole the whole tension about science and technology. Mm-hmm. That some people have this mistaken impression that Tolkien was anti-science. Right. And he's not. And he talks in, in several letters about Tom Bombadil being the embodiment of this pure scientific spirit who just wants to know versus technology, which talks about dominion and right. usefulness right. and power. Right. And so I really want to drive that home to the students that, you know, it, like people will say that Einstein is responsible for the atomic bomb. Well, Einstein did say E equals MC squared. He did not say, take this and we'll blow people up with it. So you have to really look at the difference between science just as a way of knowing about the world that you're a part of and what you do with that knowledge. Other thoughts? Any other? Any other? Uh, sort of. Uh, uh, any, again, any anything people are looking forward to in the next in the next day? We have the we have the the the, the banquet tomorrow, right? Yes. Costume yes. contest. Yes. Yeah, Usually, the majority of scholarly conferences do not, in fact, feature a costume contest. So that is yet another way in which uh, MythCon is pleasantly different. Except they don't play golf and ball. Yeah. Golf and ball. Yes. Carl and I are looking forward to another panel tomorrow afternoon on faith and fantasy. I'm looking forward to going to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was invited to join um, because uh, I'm a Tolkienist, of course, although not nearly as accomplished as some of the other people here because my own focus, as many people will know, is on Tolkien's invented languages. But another area of, um, of intense interest on my part that I've developed for a number of years now is on... Um, what I what I think of is the metaphysics of Middle Earth, and uh, both as uh, you know, Tolkien was a, a Roman Catholic, as am I, and um, that actually, as I've come to educate myself over the past decade or so, looking into Thomas Aquinas and the, the sort of the rich intellectual history of the behind uh, uh, Catholicism, uh, to which Tolkien was heir, um, I've become convinced that uh, there, there's actually quite a lot of uh, Tolkien's Catholicism expressed in the metaphysics of Middle Earth. So, uh, because from my point of view, Catholicism is not just a system of beliefs, but it's also an anthropology, uh, a cosmology, uh, a worldview, and if you look at it at that level, you can see a lot of um, uh, Catholic metaphysical thought exp- uh, expressed at some level, sometimes implicit, sometimes more explicit, in Tolkien's Legendarium. So that's that's actually a, an area that I've been um, exploring and uh, hope someday to actually have something to publish on that. But I'll, I'll probably talk about that some on the panel tomorrow uh, as I can. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. This is sort of a new area for me to, to explore. So, uh, yeah, we were asked to address on that whether the writers were discussing show faith explicitly in their works. Like, for instance, do they show specific rituals? Do they show characters going to church or doing anything like that? And then what implicit ways? And then we're supposed to also look at whether we think that's successful 
whether that adds to or detracts from the work. So I know that Lynn Maudlin is planning to talk about Harry Potter and expressions of religion in Harry Potter that she thinks detract from the story. So I'll be interested to see how she supports that. Um, And I'm going to talk about Charles Williams and some of his implicit and explicit expressions, both of his Anglican faith and of his occult involvement. And of course, Tolkien, rather famously, uh, there there are no explicit expressions of religion in in the legendarium, um, but that doesn't mean that religion is absent. So. Other than the mental tarma. <laughs> yes, that's right. And and uh, Faramir's prayer. prayer. Yeah, exactly. And, and of golem worshiping Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Although, I mean, I would make the case, for instance, that uh, you know Samwise invoking. Uh, Varda uh, mm-hmm. Elbereth um, and, and Cinder and Atironin uh, Funuilas look towards us, look towards me Funuilas I mean, to a, a lifelong Catholic you can't hear that and not think of um, the Catholic prayer that says uh, to Mary uh, turn then most gracious advocate thine eyes of mercy towards us I mean it's exactly the same sort of invocation of, of uh, someone to look at us and, and aid us. Um, so it, it, that's why I say it's not really explicit. You sort of you have to know some Elvish to really know. <laughs> Tolkien did provide notes, but not within the Lord of the Rings itself as to what that meant. And uh, it was in The Road Goes Ever On later. But if you start teasing these things out, it's 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 there. And, and I think it's, it's interesting. So um, at least I hope others will find it so too. <laughs> Well, say so I'm looking forward to our other guest of honor speech, Ursula Vernon, because I, I really loved her, her her graphic novel Digger, which I thought was just wonderfully funny, but, and, but wonderfully mythic. Poor little little Digger tunnels up into the temple of Lord Ganesh, the talking statue, who saying that yes, no, I am. Basically, an avatar of, of the of the, of the god Ganesh. I can provide you with various theological arguments for my existence, <laughs> <laughs> which never happened because it's a, it's a joke. But uh, the, the book is just one, just beautifully drawn. So we, we can't show show that on the right. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. afraid. Yeah. Very, very, very funny, but very, very moving. Also, there was a very good paper on it uh, yesterday. Uh, by Lisa, Lisa Paddle, which, uh, which is good for going through the book and the moral qualities of, 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 of the book and the, mor- mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the moral questions that are, are addressed about good and evil and uh, what you know, Digger just wants to get home gives up his best, her, sorry, her best chance to get home because she has to deal uh, with, with, with the, uh, the threat of the Will otherwise hurt a lot, a lot of people in that, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's one thing I've always admired about MythCon as well. Another thing that I think really makes it different from most scholarly conferences is the the dual focus on criticism and writing. You know how there's a, a scholarly guest of honor uh, uh, and an author guest of honor every year. Um, which is kind of refreshing, really. You know, it's like we're not just going to sit around and, and talk about literature. We'll we'll actually invite people who who who, who really write literature as well. Uh, so, yeah. Charles Levine, 
Exactly. <laughs> is she giving a reading or talking about her book? Do we know? I don't know yet. So well, she will be giving a talk. Yeah. So presumably, yeah. she'll be reading. Probably not without reference to the, to the book, I hope. But yeah. Well, and uh, another thing that may not have been mentioned yet, uh, um, speaking of books that are being honored, mm-hmm. you, uh, our very own Corey Olson has one <laughs> nominated. Oh. Um, it's his uh, seminal work on The Hobbit. <laughs> um, and did you want to give a quick plug for your book? Uh, well, I... Um, <laughs> I've probably given enough plugs on my own <laughs> podcast uh, to, and of course, the people who listen to my podcast heard like the proto version of my book anyway. In fact, I in the acknowledgement to my book, I thanked the listeners of my podcast to whom I owe my book because it was their uh, responses to my discussions of The Hobbit that both led me to write it and led a publisher to publish it. So, um, but anyway, yeah, and, and my, the, my Exploring the Hobbit book uh, is nominated for the, the Mythbeak Award in Inkling Studies, which is a wonderful honor. Um, it was uh, nominated last year, too, which was a great honor, uh, and I was so delighted to see Verlin win. Last year was funny, last year, I, I couldn't be here last year because I was actually moving into my new house on the weekend of MythCon. I was like getting tweets from people at MythCon while I was carrying boxes up the stairs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but, you know, last year I was like 100% sure that Verlin was gonna win. Like, I was like, that was, I, you know, that clearly justice needed to be done there. So I, I, I you know, I was, I basically threw the party when it was nominated, and I was like, that, you know. but anyways, it is it is it is certainly an honor to be nominated. So, um, you know, that will be that will be fun, and they and they they do it very suspensefully here. You know, <laughs> many people have asked me about it, sort of assuming that because you know, as is often the case, like you know, the the winner is told in advance, and it's kind of it's a secret to everybody else. And it's a secret to me too. I have no is idea. That terrible acceptance. And rejection speeches. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I haven't uh, really planned. I don't have written an acceptance speech because I can't help but think that scripting an acceptance speech is a bad idea. You know, I mean, it's like bad karma. Well, sort of, you know, yeah, to be, you know, to say, like, I'm now going to spend an entire evening, like, assuming that I am going to win and, you know, uh, crafting the remarks, the, the, the clever remarks I'm going to make uh, when that uh, inevitable moment occurs. It just never doesn't really seem right. So, you know, I, but... Uh, you're not going to pull an Emma Thompson and do like in the character of the little bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, see, I haven't planned it, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, not anything could happen there. But picking yeah. up on what you were saying earlier about the dual focus on creative and academic writing, there I'm looking at there are four categories of books nominated. So there are two scholarly: there's the award for Inkling Studies, and then General Myth and Fantasy Studies, and then they do also uh, Fantasy Adult Literature and Fantasy Children's Literature. Yeah covers those. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, uh, Ed Powell, who's joined us online, was saying that since I'm, I've not planned a speech, it means I will give the longest acceptance speech in Mythcon history. <laughs> <laughs> Just no, don't pull a Sally Fields and say, they love me, they really love me. <laughs> right. uh, and, and, or, you know, and I won't be the king of the world or anything okay. like that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'll try to avoid all the cliches, you know. Yeah, that's fine. 
continuing our seamless transitions from one topic to another. <laughs> <laughs> it's Segway Man. <laughs> well, just speaking of modern children's literature, we have one of our Mythgar students giving a paper on Harry Potter tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, Chris, tell us about tell us about your paper. It's the happy topic of dystopia. Ooh, dystopia <laughs> and Harry Potter. Yes, everybody uh, thinks of Harry Potter as a a book that turns out really well, but uh, there's actually a lot of dark elements in there that uh, Rowling appears, I haven't spoken with her personally, but appears to have um, been influenced by things such as George Orwell's 1984 and uh, a couple other um, dystopian classics. She was very well read, and a lot of different <coughs> ingredients went into that soup, and uh, I think dystopian fiction is some of it. Yeah, yeah. So cool. we'll talk about that. Nice. Nice. So a happy thing for Sunday morning. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's Sunday morning. Let's talk about dystopia. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks very much uh, for joining us for this uh, uh, wholly spontaneous uh, uh, podcast episode. Uh, it's a, as a tradition. Every time I come to MythCon, I like to do a review. You know, whenever I, you know, I'm here and I'm talking about being here, I've actually been. Uh, I've actually been live tweeting uh, the day, most of the day. I've been like there with my phone, you know, uh, talking about the things that I'm learning and the things that I'm hearing about. Richard, during your talk this morning, in particular, I was, I was, uh, I was, I was expressing my great excitement that you solved a mystery to which I had never known the answer before, which is why the American publisher changed the title <laughs> of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's yeah, Stone. Uh, so I was, that was, I mean, I, I know it was a very small know, element, right, of the, but I, 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 that's, I I'm convinced. Right. I'm convinced. Yeah, and just to not to not to to leave. Listeners in suspense. Uh, it was because of the Indiana Jones books, yes. right? Uh, because the, I'm sorry. Uh, as I was, yeah, giving the talk. Uh, what had it uh, happened was I said that uh, poor J.K. Rowling. I thought you pronounced yeah. her name. Uh, uh, ran into there was Catch 18, uh, not, <laughs> not Catch 22. <laughs> Joseph Heller published Catch 22 in 1961, but he actually published. The first chapter in 1955 in a magazine form. Before that, but it was Catch 18 at, at that time. Well, so, but when they were getting it ready to be to publish, Leon Uris published a bestseller called Nyla 18, and they and the marketing department said we can't have Catch 18 and Nyla 18 on the stands at the same time, so they changed it to Catch 22, <laughs> and so it became that. So my my. Hypothesis is that when uh, was being uh, when Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which is the correct term for what right. she used, right. she she didn't invent it herself. Right. That is from medieval alchemy. I, I was always so puzzled by yeah. that, you and, know, and, I, and, and, I, and I always assumed it was just because they thought Americans were so dumb so, that they well, which could be the real reason. Possible. I don't know. Yeah. But what it, but I think what had happened is that was published in the U.S. in 1997. As a, as a source for a stone, and but they look, they always look around for sim, similar similar titles. So it would have been 1996 or so that they were getting it ready to be published in 1997. And Indiana Jones and the Philosopher's Stone came out in 1995. Uh, so it was out right, uh, right about the time that the marketing department at Scholastic would be might get concerned about the similarities in title. Right. And right. This, uh, and yes, my, so my hypothesis is that's why they, they wanted to change it. Yeah. Trademark times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. There was also, of course, such an unfortunate, unintended result, which is yeah. that people who are afraid of literature with magic and witches mm-hmm. and so forth were even more put off by the title right. Sorcerer's Stone that contributed right. to the Harry Potter book burnings. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Not that the yeah. alchemical um, philosopher's stone mm-hmm. is much more improvement. <laughs> and it's all essentially Harrison Ford's fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I said, it was unfortunate that was her, the first book. If that had been the been the third book, or maybe even the second, there would have right. been no way they would have right. changed yeah, one of J.K. Rowling's titles. Yeah. Because it was just simply too much of a phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, it's almost it's almost amazing to, to think of that now. You know, to, to like, they dared to change the title of a Harry Potter novel. <laughs> you know? But yeah, it's, it is... Uh, it is After uh, her 15 rejections and then forcing her to change her name so that she didn't look too feminine. Want to sell the book to boys. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but that was great. So anyway, I, I, I think before I distracted myself, I was in the middle of, of explaining, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know what what we're doing, giving people the opportunity to 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 hear about what's going on at MythCon, to sort of share, you know, some of our observations and the things that we've heard and the things that we're doing uh, with people who can't be here. And thanks everybody for agreeing to. to you, you've all taken valuable time away from uh, from refreshments downstairs, you know. So uh, I, you know, some people brought refreshments with them, which is good, uh, you know. But uh, but anyway, th- thanks very much uh, for being with us. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.